from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. When I left the University of Chicago Department of Surgery in 2005, it was generally accepted that the program would suffer a dramatic decline in quality, volume, and national impact. Most people equated it to when Steve Jobs was ousted in 1985 and Apple nearly collapsed until Jobs returned in 1997. It is also true that in 2006, Bruce Gewertz left the institution as well after 14 years as chairman of surgery. But that seemed more of a postscript to my own departure and, in my opinion, was more a self-protective move on his part. In fact, I am still angry to this day that Gewertz tried to steal my thunder by timing his own departure so close to mine. But the University of Chicago did not collapse. In October of 2006, they recruited Jeff Matthews, who at the time was chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. We are enormously pleased to bring in Jeff Matthews as chairman of surgery, said James Madara, MD, Dean of the Biological Sciences Division and the Pritzker School of Medicine. He combines a sterling reputation as a physician, international renown as a bench scientist, and widespread recognition as an inspirational teacher with an established track record as an imaginative and efficient administrator, having run a large academic surgery department for five years. He is the model of a University of Chicago faculty member and a leader in exactly the sort of rare person we had hoped to find. It is true, Madara went on to say, that the University of Chicago community is still (laughs) reeling from the departure of Josh Mesrich. I think it is fair to say we will never really recover from that. He was truly the greatest gift the University of Chicago has ever received, and his surgical skill was second to none. This was so well captured by a quote from one of the trainees who watched him operate once and said, he truly can sew a fart to a moonbeam. Much to my surprise, the U of C Department of Surgery has not just survived, but has truly thrived, becoming an absolute leader in surgical expertise and academic research, all while fostering one of the most supportive and successful training programs in our field. The residents there are truly happy and proud to be there. I mean, how could this be? It's like they didn't even notice my own departure. So who is this Jeff Matthews? Well, he is a gastrointestinal surgeon, a leading authority on the surgical treatment of diseases of the pancreas and bile ducts. He's one of a handful of surgeons who conducts total pancreatectomy with auto-eyelet transplants for chronic pain from pancreatitis. He has also held several leadership positions. Currently, he's the chair of the Surgery Residency Review Committee of the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. He's a senior director of the American Board of Surgery and past president of the Society of Surgical Chairs the Society of University Surgeons, and the Society for Surgery of the the Elementary Tract. Dr. Matthews led a federally funded research lab for over two decades studying the regulation of epithelial transport and barrier function. Like, really, it would be easier to talk about the things he didn't do or didn't lead rather than what he did do. I do think his biggest mark on the field of surgery and healthcare could be on how we train future surgeons, how we inspire them to think, and how we evolve as academic surgeons as the world around us changes. But there is more to Dr. Matthews than that. He is a music lover and a musician. A year ago, he actually dropped a five-track album on the world titled Mirror Image. And not only was it successful, he actually was nominated for a Grammy Award. The album includes such songs as Calamity's Child, Old Timer's Day, Glass Floor, and my personal favorite title, OK Boomer. Speaking of boomers, my kids have lately been saying to me, no matter what I say, OK Boomer. So like I might say, hey, I transplanted some guy today and they say, OK Boomer. But then when I correct them and say, I'm not a boomer, guess what? They just say, OK Boomer, never fails. 
But my favorite song on this collection is one called Parallel Universe. I suppose part of the reason I like it is I have become convinced that we are living in a simulation. I mean, come on, it all started with the Cubs winning the World Series, and things got stranger from there. But mostly I just like the rhythm and the funk of it. Take a listen. I mean, that's pretty good, actually. I might actually pay to hear that. Although, don't tell anyone, you can get it free on YouTube. Oh, and by the way, the Grammy thing, I was lying about that. But more recently, Jeff has been working on a collaboration with Justin Bieber. It will be called Mirror Images 2, Jeff Matthews and Justin Bieber. One other thing about Jeff Matthews, he's also a Twitter celebrity, not a fake celebrity like I am. He even has one of those blue check marks. So he's a person of interest. I mean, I want to be a person of interest. But really, he doesn't need a blue check mark to be a person of interest. We should really strive for a world that is more accepting and has no blue check marks, said by someone who doesn't have a check mark or any Twitter followers. Okay, let's move on. Here's Jeff Matthews. Jeff Matthews, welcome to the set. Hi, Josh. How are you? Good to talk to you. I'm great. I'm so excited to have you here. I've been thinking about getting you on for a while, so I'm excited this day has come. Me too. Okay, great. Well, why don't we start? I'd like to start by asking my guests where they grew up, you know, where they went to school, and what got them interested in medicine as a career. Sure. I uh, grew up in the suburbs of Manhattan uh, in a town called Scarsdale in Westchester County, famous for lots of things like the Scarsdale Diet Doctor and famous for uh, alums of, the, of uh, that like uh, Linda McCartney or Yoko Ono and uh, people like Aaron Sorkin. Uh, so lots of interesting uh, people came out of there. But I went to public school there and then, uh, you know, left uh, when I went off to college. Got you. And I'm from New Jersey, so I know Scarsdale pretty well. As a, I have a lot of friends from that area. Did you have a parent who was in medicine? Was that totally foreign to you? Were you thinking about it? Parents were not in medicine, but I'm actually third generation physician in the family. The patriarch of the family was my maternal grandfather. And my maternal grandfather and his son and then me as his grandson made the third generation. So there was a lot of medicine uh, in the family. So I, I joined the tradition, but I, I did go into surgery. Yeah, was there any surgeon in the family or that was out of the blue? Uh, orthopedic surgeon. So my great uncle was the dean of Tufts Medical School uh, and actually was an orthopedic surgeon at Children's Hospital in Boston uh, for, uh, for a number of years. And he, if you talk to an orthopedic surgeon in their 70s, they would know who my great uncle was. I gotcha. I don't know if there are that many orthopods who became deans. I could be wrong about that, but He still is. He's in his late 90s, but he's really uh, still quite a guy, uh, mentally sharp and in incredible and a great inspiration. So I got to ask you this because I've been asking a lot of people, did you watch the show MASH? You know, on and off, you know, just like anything else. It didn't have any influence on me though, actually. Wasn't it? Okay. I, I think I went into surgery because of Hawkeye Pierce. So I always ask that question. You went on to Harvard for college? Yes. Uh, so I left, yeah, started uh, Harvard as an undergrad in 1977. Yeah. And I stayed in Boston, except for one year abroad. I stayed there for the next 24 years. Did you go from like being a Yankees fan to a Red Sox? Or? No, I'm still a Yankees fan. Okay, good. Yeah. I enjoyed 24 years in Boston as a Yankees fan, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> and you survived it. Well, I can tell you about times of running around uh, Harvard Yard when the Ran Yankees won the series or when Bucky Dent uh, hit his, uh, his uh, famous home run and uh, sort of rubbing it in the faces of, uh, of the locals. Yeah, right. I know all about that as well. When you went to Harvard, were you thinking medicine at that point? Did you major in a science? I think everybody in my family was thinking that I was going to go into medicine, but I wasn't. I wanted to be a physicist. I was really good at high school physics, and then I got completely deflated my freshman year because I basically found out that I couldn't do anything theoretical in math. And so uh, I had to sort of uh, rethink my life uh, after getting killed in freshman math and freshman physics. 
Although I will say that there's an interesting postscript to the story because I was, you know, felt horrible that I, I couldn't do math and physics at the same level. And then, you know, years later, one of the my fellow students in freshman math won the Nobel Prize in physics. So I could go back to my mother and say, well, look, this is what I was up against, you know, yeah, so, right. so her <laughs> mother run the Nobel Prize. And that's why I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't compete. So yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty tough. Although with my mom, she'd be more impressed with you being a doctor than winning a Nobel Prize. But right, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> that's a different story. All right. So then you graduated. I saw you graduated cum laude from Harvard. You couldn't get summa. Huh? Uh, yeah, listen, I was um, scholarship was not my big deal in uh, in college. Um, I, I was I had other activities. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. You did pretty well. Let me ask you, were you I was going to get to this later, but just out of curiosity, were you a musician growing up? Um, is that something you were into then? Uh, much to my parents chagrin. Uh, you know, I think in the early or mid 60s, you know, I had my little close and play turntable and I started getting records and uh, sort of really getting into music and then started playing guitar. I was sort of self-taught by probably about 12 or 13 and started playing in bands. I actually recently hooked up again, uh, connected on Twitter with my junior high school bandmate. And we were sharing some memories and actually found some old photos. He went on to become the editor of, uh, of Harper's Magazine. Oh, nice. So we were just uh, uh, reconnected on Twitter and laughing about our junior high school band. Did you ever think uh, you'd make a go of music as a career or was never that kind of level? Oh, I was uh, long on enthusiasm, short on talent. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> and, and it was, uh, by the time I got to college, it was the punk rock era. It was a real DIY time. And, uh, you know, so I was playing in punk bands in college and doing all that scene. I bet a lot of people don't know that you played in punk bands. I, at least I wouldn't have realized that. Oh, yeah, 1977. Baby, <laughs> that's awesome. All right, good. So then um, you ended up at Harvard Med School. Were you when you went into med school? Were you thinking surgery at that point? Yeah, I had already sort of caught the surgery bug. Uh, um, the The epiphany I had actually came after freshman year in college uh, it, when I uh, was trying to figure out what else to do with my life. And uh, I'd mentioned my grandfather, who was a uh, uh, the sort of the family patriarch, and he worked at the uh, Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. And suggested that I call up somebody that he respected a lot, who was Bill Silen, uh, who was the chief of surgery at the Beth Israel. And uh, many people know him for lots of things, but of course, like Cope's uh, diagnosis of the acute abdomen, for example. Uh, so I um, called him up and asked if I could volunteer in his lab. So basically, from sophomore year in college, uh, I was volunteering in a surgeon's lab doing research. And so by the time I stuck around and uh, stayed on to do med school at Harvard, I'd already been working in Bill Silence lab for three years and then kept it up all through medical school. Oh, that's great. I did. When I got into med school, my dad, who was a late bloomer, went to radiology later in his career. He gave me that, that book, uh, uh, the acute abdomen. And, uh, it's very, it's an inspiring book for a young you know, person just getting exposed. He's an, he's an amazing guy. He's still alive. Uh, he's in his, uh, in his mid nineties, you know, was quite a force to be reckoned with, but great to train under. And, uh, it was a real inspiration to me. Did you see any operations as an undergrad? I probably did. I just said all blurs together. I don't remember when I saw my first operation, but probably around that time, I'm sure I went in and watched him. I've always thought it's interesting because, well, lots of people have different paths to surgery, but it's one of those careers that you can get excited about for different reasons, but you have no idea if you'll be any good at it, right? Yeah, I actually never thought about whether I would be any good at it at the time. I just wanted to be like them. So it's sort of an, it just shows you the role of mentorship can start early. You never know. That's great. So then you went to med school already thinking surgery at that point. You trained at the BI. You did a year in Switzerland, huh? Residencies were a little more loosey-goosey back in the day in terms of what you could do. Since I'd already been in Silence lab for like seven years at that point. I didn't do a traditional research year. I looked for a year where I could get some HPB experience. There really weren't a whole lot of HPB fellowships around. Um, and really, there were three places in Europe, you know, the three Bs they used to say was, uh, uh, you know, Denmark, Bismuth, and Bloomgart were the three people you had to go with one of them. And so uh, Bill Silen reached out to Henri Bismuth and to uh, Les Blumgart. And uh, the best opportunity was with Blumgart while he was in Switzerland. So I went to work with him a couple of years before he ended up transitioning to uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, where he still is. Oh, okay. And you were in the operating room with him. Yeah, there was a year of fellowship. Yeah, I mean, it was a year of informal fellowship because technically it was my fourth year of general surgery training. So it was a fourth year resident. And I came back as a chief resident. It kind of reminds me when you read, I love reading medical history and 
you know, the Halstead era and then, you know, the people who trained after him, they all had to go to Europe to get, and that's how it worked back then. Now, obviously, things are much more developed here. Um, you're not quite Halstead's age, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm up there, though. <laughs> yeah, you're up there. I wasn't going to say it, but you look very young, though, in the, in the video. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, so you obviously got interested in hepatobiliary early. You worked with one of the biggest names still to this day, I guess. Um, was he was he a great mentor? Was he kind of like, who are you? Oh, no, he was amazing. Uh, so it, it's interesting. We shared a lot. In, he's a very, I don't know if you've ever uh, met him, but he is uh, exudes charm, very witty, and um, just um, so charismatic and fun to be around. He was very inspiring. Uh, very different than Bill Silent. Uh, who was hyper-intellectual and hyper-cautious. Bloomgart was more adventurous and pushing the limits, and he made you really excited to be around him and to work around him. You know, he was just was wonderful to me over my whole career. That's wonderful. It's great to have that. I've seen him give some talks, but I don't know him beyond that. But He's a showman. He's a showman. <laughs> well... That's why he went into this career, I guess. So then you you were on, you stayed on at Harvard and you were there, you know, through being promoted to associate and then went on to Cincinnati. And you went Natty as a chairman, right? Correct. So I, I knew you had a basic science lab and then you fairly quickly went from assistant professor to associate professor to chairman. I'm just curious about that path. One, the lab and your experiences there. And two, how you funneled into becoming a chairman and, and when you got interested in that. You know, I always wanted to be, to follow in the, uh, Bill Silent's footsteps, you know, and, and thought about, you know, that kind of leadership because, uh, you know, I always admired him. But the first, I was on faculty at the Beth Israel for 10 years before I left. When I finished residency and came on faculty, I started with a new research mentor who was a pathologist over at the Brigham named uh, Jim Madera, who was a great epithelial cell biologist in the day when epithelial cell culture was just uh, coming on board. And he was doing work that was related to what I had done with Bill Silen before, but with really new techniques uh, and really taking it to another level. Silen arranged for me to uh, be mentored by him. And so as I started my clinical practice, I was, you know, be running across the street every other day to the Brigham to be in the lab. Um, and I got a technician, you know, and we sort of shoestring together of that and ended up getting my um, R29, which is the what they call a KO8 these days. And uh, in a couple of years, had gotten a few of these career development awards from societies, the American College of Surgeons, etc. And then within about first five years, I had two R01s, uh, maybe first six years, I had two R01s at that point, in a pretty basic lab doing uh, epithelial transport and barrier function work. I was studying the molecular behavior of a specific ion transporter that for some reason was really interesting to me, but not to having anything to do with anything surgical. But uh, it, was a, it was a lot of fun to, uh, to do. And, you know, after a period of time, um, I started getting asked to do more internal leadership things and started to um, participate in, you know, various sort of national things, first the AAS and the SUS back in those days and presenting at the surgical forum and the usual kinds of things and started to get asked to look at jobs. And uh, initially they were, you know, looking to, you know, be either division chiefs or vice chairs of research kind of thing. But then I started to get asked to look at some chair jobs. And I looked at a few, but I was really excited by uh, the University of Cincinnati and what it had to offer. First of all, a great tradition of, uh, academic surgery there, sort of the notion of the surgeon scientist there was pretty uh, well accepted and it was a, a, a good department. And so, uh, you know, that's ultimately where I, where I went. I, you know, was a, a lot of people told me to wait and not do it. I was 41 years old. So I think when I took that job, I was the youngest surgical chair in the country. And when I left five years later to go to the University of Chicago, I think I was still the youngest chair in the country. If not the youngest, I was pretty close to it. So I think whether or not it was the right move for me, I mean, I just had an amazing time in Cincinnati with an amazing department and, and really made lots of friends and uh, had great learning opportunities there. You know, but people, you know, in academics, you move sometimes. And so yeah, let me let me dig into this a little bit. I'm curious to get your take on this. So I have a basic science lab as well. And my science has veered a lot, a, a lot away from my clinical practice. Um, it's not really even connected to it. You know, some people have given me the advice or gave it to me, like always research what you're doing surgically or what your interests are. And I'm curious your take on that. Like, did you, do you have any regrets about it? Did you love the science? Did you want to, I know it was a little bit of a different time back then in terms of translational research, maybe, 
But what, what is your take? Like, what do you advise people now about that? Yeah, what I would advise people to do is to try to, if you, if you can make your uh, research coherent with your clinical practice, it's ideal. The problem was mine was never that way. You know, I started off doing peptic ulcer research with Bill Silen and knew more about gastric physiology than just about anybody back in the day at my level. I think myself and David Soybell probably knew more about it than any, anybody. Then the disease sort of went away from surgeons. Uh, and that's when I started thinking about, you know, HPB and other sorts of things. And by then, the my research, I, I you know, I just sort of followed where the, the research went. I, you know, I was definitely shaped by friendships that I made as I was getting my lab going. And as I was working in Bill Silen's lab, one of the thing of, things about Bill Silen was he was really well respected among basic scientists, both at Harvard and, and around the around the world. And as, you know, one of the kids in his lab, I started making friendships with the people that were at the equivalent levels in the other labs that were there and it developed a really nice community of basic scientists and physiologists. You know, when I was you know, back in uh, Boston, the first 10 years or so on faculty, I probably went to more basic science meetings than I went to surgical meetings. I was you know, I was on the editorial board of the American Journal of Physiology, Cell Physiology, and the American Journal of GI Physiology, and was really spending a lot of time with cell biologists and, and physiologists. And it was a fun little social group. And I was also influenced by some of the PhD researchers in Bill Silen's lab who used to say, they didn't give a damn about whether there was any practical relevance for the work because, you know, who knew that, you know, viruses would, would turn into something that was interesting for cancer or things like, you know, you just go where the questions take you. And so I just went where the questions took me and they got very fundamental. But is that the right way to design it? Probably not. I feel like it's very similar to how I would talk about mine. Like, you know, you want to start a lab, you're excited about science. There's the reality of what you what you have access to, the tools you have, the mentors you have, and then you follow the science. And it doesn't always lead in the direction that your clinical practice is. And like you, I find myself presenting at meetings with toxicologists and environmentalists and not surgeons. The difference you also, well, ultimately you veered into, I guess you'd say the leadership, which probably brought you back into some of the surgical meetings, or maybe you always had a presence. Yeah, I was always going. I mean, look, back in those days, you went to a lot of meetings. I mean, that's what we did. Um, it's uh, the, the budgets were a little less limited back then, and uh, there was a little bit more uh, freedom to sort of travel from circle to circle, uh, a little bit easier. And, you know, a lot of the sub-sub-specialty societies hadn't even started yet. Um, so there was just a narrower range of, of, of meetings to choose from. So I was at all the surgical meetings, but I also went to a lot of basic science meetings as well. And, you know, over the years, that sort of shifted uh, as I took on more and more leadership roles in the departments. Also, we became a department chair. Yeah, I had my lab, but my job wasn't to do my research. And yeah, even I you know, got the R01s funded for a cycle or two after becoming chair, but you know, my lab's closed now. I don't have a lab anymore because my job isn't to have a successful lab. My job is to make other people have successful labs. And to, and to promote their careers. So it stopped being about the questions that I was interested in maybe about 10 years ago uh, and became more about creating the climate uh, where uh, others' labs could, could thrive and grow because the, you know, my, basically my job changed. Yeah, so let's talk about that now. So you've been in leadership for quite a while and both as a, a surgery chairman now at two institutions, but you've also had leadership roles in, well, a lot of other things, big societies in surgery which many of our surgical listeners know all about, but also in training. You've been, I believe, the head of the residency review committee for the ACGME. So, you know, I guess that would be the committee that's most involved in making sure our residents actually get trained. And um, you're also a senior director of the American Board of Surgery. Um, do you get as much excitement and enjoyment out of the leadership as you did the science as you do the operating? Or is it, I mean, you, you have three hats right there. There's lots of hats that you wear uh, at different times in different, different seasons. And they've all been interesting and gratifying in their own way. I still love to operate and I love doing pancreatic surgery. I love the pancreas and, and love doing that work, but I'm much less clinically active than I was, you know, 15 or 20 or 25 years ago because the job just sorts of change, you know, changes. You know, leadership in academic surgery, societies, organizations, whether it's just participating in committee work or getting on study section or peer review at journals, I always said yes to every opportunity that 
that came along. I would say that there were probably some roles and some committees that really weren't that interesting, but that I tried to do with gusto. I you know, was always sort of trained to do more than what was asked and to try to you know, get things done early and on time. And those things helped me along the way in each of the the hats that I, you know, was lucky enough to be able to wear, whether it was, you know, becoming journal editors or on editorial boards, and then ultimately, you know, journal editors or, you know, society leadership things. The American Board of Surgery was an incredible experience, continues to be an incredible experience. The RRC, they call it the RC now, the ACGME Review Committee for Surgery. It's had many names over the years. Again, uh, just a really interesting window into how the education side of surgery and how accreditation and the public trust happens uh, in surgery. Things at the American College of Surgeons, extremely exciting. Right. Let me ask you this somewhat basic question. How are we doing training residents? Are we doing better now than before? Are we doing worse? Like, what is, what is your assessment of that? I guess it depends upon what product you're looking for. It's interesting. I have a meeting every year with the incoming chief residents uh, where I talk to them about, you know, what do they think their challenges are? What did they think of the chief residents that taught them when they were interns? Do they feel as well prepared? And I've been asking the same question for 20 years of being a chair. And for the last 20 years, every group of incoming chief residents feels that something has been lost from the way their chief residents had it or the experiences that they're having. And I got to tell you, from my perspective, I just see great surgeons coming out at the end every, every year who, by the time they're ready to leave the program, are indispensable uh, to our program. And I couldn't be more proud and trusting of them to take care of our patients or me or uh, anything. So I think we're training more thoughtful surgeons. I think we're training surgeons that have greater diversity. Uh, and, and I say the word diversity in, a, in its broadest um, sense, uh, not just demographic uh, diversity, but I think attitudes and approaches that have really changed what it means to be a surgeon considering the old school models. Who trains me? I just see a group. If I look at the, the young faculty at the University of Chicago who have recently finished training within the last five or eight years, they're unbelievable. And I wish I had that experience as a student or a resident to be trained by people like that. You know, I think it's all relative. You know, the sky's always been falling in surgery as far as I'm concerned. Everybody says that it was better the generation before, but I'm not sure I buy that. Right. I, 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 well, you know a lot more about this than I do, but I would like to reiterate, I feel the same way. So I'm in the field of transplant and we, you know, we have a fellowship and every year I'm blown away with the quality of the fellows. And it certainly hasn't gotten worse in my experience. And I know that maybe in some way a select group, but just year after year, they've been fantastic. So, yeah, I think, I think the way surgeons learn and the way surgeons attain independence is different this these days. But I think it's better. I think it's safer in many respects. I think it's better for the public. But I do think we have, we are at a critical period of time where there are a lot of innovations actually coming out of your own institution and some of the leaders that are thinking about professional activities and how changing ways that we assess and changing ways that faculty think about teaching and evaluating the acquisition of skills could really be the next big breakthrough. And so when you see things that are coming out of the American Board of Surgery and the ACGME and the American College of Surgeons, thinking about updating the surgical training paradigms, it's a very exciting time. I, I think there's a lot of uh, great things happening, leveraging technology and the increased recognition of different learning styles to grow professionals. Yeah, it is mind-blowing to think that, well, obviously we know people learn and at different speeds and they come in at different levels. And so maybe a rote five-year general surgery is not correct for everyone, but it is mind-blowing to think that people might advance at different speeds and how to balance that in a schedule. <laughs> but are you a fan of people like early decisions into different pathways like cardiac or transplant or what have you? Or? That's a great question. I'm not sure. I think, uh, and this is where I'm going to put on my, my stick in the mud, old school thinking. I'm concerned about some of the idea that you can pinpoint a curriculum so narrowly that you know exactly what needs to be learned and what can what's be avoided. I don't want to pick on any one uh, specialty that has a track to be able to go to enter, you know, separate from general surgery. But I would say that there's explicit learning, explicit forms of knowledge, and there's tacit knowledge. And some of the tacit knowledge that comes from a five-year general surgery 
training program is lost in ones that bypass the senior resident years of general surgery or try to overly customize the intern or junior resident years. You know, you need to do this, but you don't need to do that. I worry that it's not just about ability to read chapters in a book or have a very narrow set of rotations, but the breadth of practice and the breadth of exposure to a wide variety of surgical pathologies is what makes some of those subspecialists, whether it's heart surgeons or vascular surgeons or plastic surgeons, you know, some of the greatest surgeons around. I worry a little bit that there's something lost if you if you mess too much with the time there and you try to narrow it too much. Right. I don't have the kind of responsibility you you have of actually being a big person in training. So I can just speak freely. Like I, I, I share those same concerns. And I know for me, like part of my residency was really maturing and getting to the point that I could actually be a decision maker and take care of patients and take that responsibility on. But I learned so much in my fourth and fifth year. I feel like my junior, my first years, I was just a really hardcore junior resident who didn't think about the OR. My third year, I was just making that transition. And it was really my fourth and fifth year where I blossomed. Hopefully the people at the University of Chicago agree with that. But like I needed those five years before my fellowship. We've written you off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know my picture has been taken down from the University of Chicago, but <laughs> let me ask you this question because you've been successful in basic science and now you're in leadership. It's my belief, I'm not sure if you'll agree, that the way kind of healthcare is going, the way mergers are going, that in the future, it's going to be a small number of surgery programs that can really support surgeon scientists doing, you know, funded research, doing like NIH funded research. Do you agree with that? Or you think everyone can do it? I completely disagree. There is more surgical, federally funded surgical research being done now than ever. It's just not all under what you would imagine in the past was called basic science. Uh, It's more in translational uh, science uh, and health services uh, research and a variety of other really interesting hot areas. Uh, But if you look at the total amount of funding, it's actually continued to go up. Is it going up as fast as it could? Maybe not. not. Can you still be a a basic researcher and be a old school surgeon scientist? Absolutely. That was the way you had to do it in the past to be a, a, a funded surgeon scientist. Um, But now there's a lot of ways to do it. I mean, outcomes research, health services research, epidemiology was not done at a very high level in surgical programs across the United States in the past. The people who were surgeon scientists of like my sort of breed or whatever, yeah, we were doing bench science. But there was nobody doing really, or very few people doing high quality trials work or epidemiology health services work. And now there are a lot of people doing that. And residents and trainees are voting with their feet because that's where a lot of the really interesting problems are in surgery. And if you look at where the great work is being done, whether it's at um, at Michigan or uh, at Northwestern down the street, and the work that they do with the college, it's incredible. Uh, it's really high quality stuff and it's very impactful and it's federally funded. Well, that's a great answer. I'm happy to be wrong about that. And it says a lot of, it's very positive for our field, I think, going forward. Really positive. And yeah, but I, you know, listen, I, I love basic science. I love being in the lab. I haven't done it personally for a number of years now, but when you catch that bug, if that's your thing, you can be a great surgeon and do that too. It's not like it's impossible to do. It's just not for everybody. Right. I think that's right. Let me ask you this. So you gave a great talk that I had the chance to watch on truth and truthiness, which I thought is really particularly timely in the current world we're living in now. But I, there were a lot of really great pearls in that talk. But you, but there were a few things I guess I wanted to point out. You know, truthiness is like truth that comes from the gut, not from books. As a general sense, what we do is more true than false but like, do we really practice evidence-based medicine? And I've, I've, I'm someone who thinks about this a lot. Obviously, surgery is part experience, part art, part knowing the data, but your patients never fit into any study, right? So how do you feel about that when someone asks, do we truly practice evidence-based medicine? What is your answer to that? Yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of particular challenges to evidence-based surgery. Because if the best evidence comes from prospective randomized trials, we have a lot of challenges of doing that in surgery. There's some areas where it's been done well, but there's a lot, many more areas where the surgical questions may not be testable uh, in a randomized control trial format because there's so many different variables that need to be controlled. I think there are special considerations in surgery, not to say that we shouldn't be following evidence where it exists, but I sort of 
think about the old joke or, or situation about, you know, looking for your keys, you know, underneath the street lamp, not where you drop them, uh, because the light is better under the street lamp. So I think part of the problem with evidence-based practice is that that may actually not be the question that's the relevant question to the patient's care decision, whether it's knowing what the uh, morbidity or mortality of the operation is, knowing what, you know, certain endpoints that may or may not be important to patients are, you know, it may not be where the, the real decision lies. And it may be in really understanding the patient's value systems, how they make decisions, what considerations are involved, sort of old factor, uh, old fashioned doctoring. Uh, kinds of decisions there. And so one has to be careful about not obsessively following evidence that may not be precisely applicable to the situation at hand, just because that's the evidence that exists. You know, if there's 10 issues at, at hand in a given clinical decision, and one of them has, has a randomized clinical trial, that doesn't make the other nine issues less important. It just means that there may not be testable. So I think the problem is, is that there's a lot more involved in surgical decision making that's within the reach of evidence-based practice, at least as traditionally defined. Um, and many people, many really smart people have pointed out the drawbacks to evidence-based practice. And I'm certainly not the first by any means to, to make these concerns, but it's, it's like everything. It's, there's a bit of a balance uh, there, which is why I sort of think about truth and truthiness. I actually, there's going to be a uh, piece coming out in the British Journal of Surgery that captures and summarizes that lecture and sort of updates it, hopefully in the not too distant future. It's a wonderful lecture. Actually, I recommend anyone out there, they can find it on the web or hopefully that piece will summarize it. I totally agree with it. You have a few great lines in there. You, you mentioned choices may have less impact than we think. I think a lot about that when I teach the residents and I always joke that you know, a high percentage of what we do is made up and doesn't matter. And so if you can be one of those people who can figure out which parts matter, you know, you're ahead of the game. But if you can go figure out if a patient's sick or not, <laughs> if they're not sick, probably most of what you do doesn't matter. And if they are sick, it might matter. You know, there's lots of helpful aphorisms and aphorisms are, are great when they help to uh, focus our thinking or change our perspective on things. But I'm always struck by the, by things like, you know, not everything that matters can be measured and not everything that can be measured matters. And I think that's part of the issue that we that we get into in, uh, in evidence-based practice. Yeah, I also think about in a complex surgery, which you do and I do some of them, the amount of decisions you make in the operating room, it's astronomical. And probably a lot of them don't matter how you sew something, do you antigog, retrogog, you know, how did you sew your vessels together, whatever. So much of it is based on experience or your last complication. And it's so hard to know which, <laughs> which things make a difference, right? I mean, yeah, we know that experience matters, but we don't know exactly how much and in which situations it really matters. We sort of know, but we don't really know in a, in a precise way. And it makes it a little bit you know, challenging. Yeah, I agree. Do you think we do a good job of giving residents kind of feedback about how they're doing with those types of things, both technical in the OR and their decision making? I think we don't give, uh, we're working very hard at this at University of Chicago, and I know other places are as well, about figuring out how to preserve opportunities for residents to acquire experience and a sense of autonomy, you know, the opportunity for safe struggle uh, to be able to, to really work at something in the operating room, but with safe boundaries around it and to make that transparent to the patient about, you know, who's doing which part of the operation uh, and to uh, make sure that they're okay uh, with that. Uh, and then to document that the outcomes are, are good and strong. We need to provide residents the opportunity to become progressively independent during residency so that the, by the time they're finished, they really can do that. But we don't really know how to do this. The other point about that issue about experience gets to the, this notion of clinical judgment. If you go back to, you know, the tenets of evidence-based medicine, even the, the most ardent proponents of evidence-based medicine said that the evidence needs to be interpreted in the context of clinical judgment. But we don't really know how to define it and how you acquire it. You know, like Potter Stewart's definition of pornography, we know it when we see it, but it's very hard. To, we know clinical judgment when we see it. Uh, but we don't really know what it is or how it or how it's acquired or how it's measured. Um, so this gets back to that notion of of we know that experienced surgeons are 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 better, but when did that happen? How did they how did they gain that? And how do you 
uh, accelerate the acquisition of experience and judgment. Um, and that's, I think, one of the really interesting research questions in surgery today. Right. I know there's been some great papers written by Justin Dimmick's group about the filming of people doing surgery and being able to really, I guess, judge and validate that you can tell that it's a really interesting area. That's from a technical standpoint, but that may not be from a taking standpoint, which is a different different thing as well. And that's incredibly exciting about the data that's come out of Michigan and elsewhere uh, about that. How broadly that can be applied and how that can be scaled, I think is a big question mark, but is a huge opportunity. But that's not exactly the same thing as the judge, as we all know, the judgment of when to operate is one of the biggest issues involved in this in the wise surgeon phase. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, knowing when a patient is sick or not, knowing when to, you know, which direction to go in. How do you measure that? You, again, you know it when you see it. You know which surgeons on your faculty have that skills and which in whom it's still evolving. Something that's not measured by a videotape. Yeah, you're right. And I always say I'll I'll always take a surgeon or a trainee with a good brain over good hands as long as their hands are just adequate. So I'm curious as in some of the different cases how some of that data plays out. But it's a really exciting time for that kind of work. Yeah, I agree. Are you someone who loves the act of surgery or you love thinking about it? Like what is your relationship? to operating? I love being in the operating room. In years past, I had a super busy practice. Now it's fairly narrow in the, in the pancreas world. And, and I have some you know, amazing partners here on our team. So my uh, time in the operating room is still limited to uh, you know, a day or so a week. That's fine, but I still absolutely love it. I get to be with the residents. We get to talk about lots of things. We get to, you know, you know what the thrills are of being in the operating room and solving problems uh, there. We also get to listen to music and, uh, and it's a very relaxing uh, a space for learning and for uh, sort of getting in flow. Yeah, right. I spoke to Bruce Gewirtz recently about flow. We were talking about it. So um, I agree. It's like this protected space for us. I'm sure with you, with the tons of meetings and calls you must get, it's the one place where people don't question you when you're like, I can't talk now. <laughs> Yeah, they still find a way to get in there, but yeah. Yeah, if you can get, if you can make your way in there. I wanted to, can I talk to you a little bit? Of, I wanted to talk to you a little about Twitter. So you have a, a big Twitter following and are an active uh, a Twitterer, some about surgery, some about politics. Has that been um, a fun part of, is that anything to do with your career? Is it just this fun side thing? Like, how do you look at that? Yeah, I, I view it as a, uh, first of all, it's fun. Look, uh, social media can also be a cesspool and a very difficult place uh, uh, to be. But the thing that's been the the reason that I love social media and love Twitter is it's a great leveler. It, it flattens the hierarchies and it's allowed me to connect with people at all kinds of different positions, whether it's medical students or college students or trainees or ancient professors uh, and across lots of different fields and outside of surgery as well. Uh, so it's a great leveler. And it's like being at a party and jumping in on different conversations. And I learn a lot it can be used as a source of information and misinformation and disinformation. And it's a way of keeping up with the world. Have you ever had any patients uh, interact with you or follow you or talk to you about it? I've never actually had a patient say, oh, I follow you on, t on Twitter. But, you know, I, I don't even actually know. Um, I've, I've never, never really paid attention like that. Actually, I do. No, that's not true. I, knew, I, kn I know one or two family members of patients that follow me and I follow them back, but, uh, it's never, there's never, there, there, I, I feel like I've been pretty good about, about keeping the lines clean. I don't tweet, I don't tweet, I don't live tweet operations, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. I think you may or may not have seen that this surgeon went to his court date from the operating room just the other day. That. That's just incredible, but we won't get into that. Um, I find it interesting to practice medicine in this polarized time that we're in, uh, like you'll go on rounds and you immediately notice that like, is the TV on CNN or Fox or um, it, it doesn't matter to me. Obviously, I'll take care of anyone, but I, I've just found that to be an interesting time to practice medicine. And yeah, I, I, I'll work with anyone, too. Uh, you know, and I have to say that we all have our own bubbles, but I really try to have my social media uh, bubble be as porous as possible. And I follow a lot of uh, conservative comment. There's uh, a lot of conservative friends uh, and uh, tr try to hear what they have to say and to think about things in as open a way as possible and try not to be as myopic uh, and opinionated. It, it's, it is an interesting time. I, I don't think that it should ever cross over into, into patient care. I think uh, we have to embrace the differences and, and try to move society forward by understanding. Yeah, absolutely. 
Let me ask you this. One of the operations you're famous for and really have been an innovator in, I think, is in uh, surgery for chronic pancreatitis. And I know you've championed uh, the total pancreatectomy with uh, auto islets or for anyone that's not in our field, taking out the patient's whole pancreas and then essentially gr grinding it up and getting the islets out that make insulin although in a nicer way than I said it, and then injecting them back into the patient. And I think you probably have the biggest series in the country, if not the world, on this. Is Probably not. I think the Minnesota group has had the, the largest um, experience in that over the years. And actually, I think my niche uh, or my, my reputation is for having the smallest experience because I'm much more selective, I think, in the patients that I'll recommend to have that procedure than certainly in the early years as we were trying to figure out what the role of total pancreatectomy and islets uh, was. Uh, and I, I think I fell down the, on the more conservative side of, of the spectrum in terms of adoption of that and patient selection. Um, I think the field has moved back towards a reasonably comfortable middle on, on that, the, the group of patients that, are, that do best with, with that uh, operation. Really over the last 20 years uh, was the, is the experience that I've had. My colleagues in Cincinnati really were there ahead of me, and I learned from them and certainly had a big experience and thought a lot about the problems there. But the group in Cincinnati continues to be really strong. Yeah, it's an interesting area because, well, pancreatitis is always tough, but surgery for pain is always a very big challenge, and there are lots of different examples of surgery for pain. And I think you hit it on the head. It's so much about being thoughtful about patient selection because there's certainly some population that's going to benefit but there's some that aren't and it's challenging, right? To do a big surgery for pain. I mean, I think about other areas that are like, I don't know, the knee surgeries and all the back surgeries might be some other examples where probably we do too many. I think it's fair to say, although I'm someone who has chronic back pain and I would love to get rid of it, but. <laughs> yeah, need, need a nice placebo operation to get rid of it. But I think that there's, that's the problem with a lot of surgical trials is the ethics associated with, uh, with the decision to operate or not, or the ability to use um, sham surgery, for example. Uh, and I, I think uh, with, with uh, extirpation surgery, like total pancreatectomy, uh, I still don't know if we're doing the right thing. You know, a lot of operations for chronic pancreatitis simply fail. Uh, because we don't have insights into what's truly causing the pain uh, and how to predict from the more patient's morphology and from the patient's history of how they show up in your office with their condition, what the likelihood is that their pain could be relieved by a surgical approach. It's really hard. Uh, and the, uh, the more I do, the less I know. That's interesting. I love when people say things like that because uh, I'm feeling that way too. So <laughs> to end by talking a little bit about music, because I know you, you, uh, have a love for music, you're always recommending music and you play in a band. What is your band called? I just want to say that, um, so I, I, I'm not a great like performance artist. I'll, I'll play in bands and I've played in bands over the years, but I don't love to play live. Personally, I love to be in the studio and record my own stuff. And I work with a different set of musicians uh, when I'm in the studio and do my own stuff, which you can stream and get it in iTunes and Spotify and YouTube music. It's all up there. But that's different. The band that we have in the hospital that I have with John Alverdi and others is really a mishmash of people. Uh, we call ourselves Turnover Time uh, because when we started off, it was all OR personnel. And as I like to say, uh, you know, our, the band motto of Turnover Time uh, is that we always start late and we don't have the right instruments. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, uh, and it's basically been a rotating group of uh, residents, uh, different singers and players, uh, a couple of faculty that have stayed constant, like myself and John Alberti, medical students and OR nurses, basically anybody who says, hey, can I come jam with you uh, is in the band by definition. <laughs> is John, John plays guitar or what is I don't even know. He plays keyboards. Oh, he's keyboards. I never heard from him, huh? He's a great, actually a great jazz pianist. And I and it's funny because anybody who's been in the band or seen the band plays is that I always fight with him in the band because he's not rock and roll enough. He's like he's he wants to write out the music and see it all there and play all the notes and everything like that. Just like throw away the sheet music, just play it, <laughs> play it like you feel. It. So that's the self-taught musician, you know, versus the one who actually knows what they're doing, <laughs> which is John. That's awesome. And um, all right, so just to wrap it up, Peloton, who's your favorite uh, person to train with or favorite few? Uh, so I'm a. a uh, Dennis Morton and Matt Wilpers are, are sort of my go-to, but uh, I, I, uh, I usually go by the length of the, of the ride and the, 
and the music format. So I like to mix it up. Yeah, I, I'm a huge Peloton fan myself. And a lot of it is, if I want to just get destroyed, I go with Olivia. Right. Olivia will destroy you as with as will uh, Kendall. I actually feel genuinely nauseous before I start a ride with Olivia. But it's really awesome. What's your, any, any favorite show that you're streaming? Uh, well, right now, I just I, I just caught up on WandaVision, which is really uh, great. Listen, we, we've, uh, this has been uh, like, it's like the golden age of television. There's been so many things that have been fun. I caught up, uh, got, got through Ted Lasso, which I absolutely love, which was, uh, was fantastic. Just watched this old Netflix thing called the uh, end of the effing world, which was great. Highly recommended. Enjoyed that one a lot. But uh, yeah, I got through Peaky Blinders. That was great. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm usually two or three years uh, behind. <laughs> okay, last question. I've been trying to ask people like you this. What, what piece of advice you give to young people, whether they're going into surgery or they're going into other fields um, that you think is important? maintain balance in your life. You should come out of training the same person as you went into training. Uh, keep your friends, keep your interests. It took me a long time to sort of restart my interest in playing in bands and, and writing songs uh, and getting into the recording studio. There was about 15 years where that sort of just wasn't part of what I was doing. And I, I should have kept it up all along. I felt like I had to be um, all work all the time and realizing how much happier I could be whatever you follow, whatever you like to do, whatever you like to create, keep doing that. Don't stop. I think that's really great advice. I, I like you, lost a lot of stuff and then have gotten some of it back. But well, listen, Jeff, I really appreciate it. I want to say that I know a lot of your trainees who absolutely love you. And I think you're doing great things at University of Chicago. Although it's hard to know if the good direction of UFC is because you got there or because I left because it was like pretty much around the same time. So combination of the two perhaps yeah <laughs> it could be so and don't forget to subscribe on itunes spotify podbean and stitcher invite your friends to listen in if you have any and if you're feeling generous rate us on your favorite podcast app but only if you're going to give us a good rating it really does make a huge difference thank you so much The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to grand rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Wisc Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. <laughs>